everybody get ready for Foodie and the Beast with David and Nikki Nellis. A foodie born and bred, my wife Nikki loves chatting up chefs, dining out, and insider industry buzz. And my husband David thinks a great meal is nothing but a good burger, a frosty brew, and a check for under $20. Because he is cheap. Well, maybe so, but Foodie married Beast anyway, and together we've got the Food and Wine Variety Show that has everyone talking. It's Foodie and the Beast, and we are on now. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Foodie and the Beast with David and Nikki Nellis here on a beautiful weekend. Gorgeous weekend. I think you guys know that uh, because of the pandemic, we've been recording on Saturdays and running on Sundays. So you're hearing this on June 6th. 2021, which is another anniversary of D-Day. And while D-Day may not be relevant for a lot of folks who were not born around that time, and I wasn't either, I'd like to add, although I wasn't far behind that, um, uh, it doesn't hurt to stop and remember how many people gave their lives and how many people were involved, hundreds of thousands of, of, of people and thousands of ships and planes, um, all on that to uh, tamp down on Nazi Germany. And there are not many of them left, but they deserve our thanks. And I wanted to say so. Now, onto the show. Nick, you have some things you want to talk about. Well, yeah, I'm not going to talk about things nearly as serious as you. So, way to kick off the show, honey. Well, I'm a deep and serious guy. Yeah, what can you I are. say? Um, that's what everybody says about you. Yeah, real deep. Uh, <laughs> but I do want to tell people so, as restaurants are easing into the 100%, there is a lot of new places opening up out there. And David and I have actually been to several of them in the past couple of weeks. Um, Caruso's, the neighborhood restaurant group, Italian restaurant, partnered with Matt Adler, just opened up in the Roost, like old-timey Italian food, spaghetti and meatballs, deep-fried mozzarella. It's calorie-packing food, but it is totally worth it and delicious. Think of the I chef in Lady and the Tramp singing, this is the night, what a beautiful night, what a bella notte, and that's the kind of restaurant it is. Okay, you didn't go to the restaurant, but sure. And then uh, Taco Bamba, Vital Bisu, had to unfortunately close his Taco Bamba that was here in D.C. Uh, and has brought it across the river because there are four properties in Virginia to Maryland. And it just opened in Congressional Plaza. And uh, we are huge fans of Vital Bisu as well as of his Taco Bamba. Spectacular. Yes, it's spectacular. Great food, fast casual. There is booze, great margaritas. Uh, but if you are craving some really good tacos, it's totally worth checking out. And then lastly, we have to give a shout out to Kyle Bailey and the entire Longshot team at Dauphine's, which opened about a month ago. We uh, had a huge dinner there last night for our daughter's graduation, and uh, they just rocked it out. It is really a gorgeous, gorgeous space, and the food is terrific. Okay, David, tell everybody who's coming in on the show. Well, first, of course, we've got Deb Moser from Central Farm Market. She's going to be talking to us about infusions, making simple syrups and more, and what you can get at the market, what you can source at the market. Uh, Naraya is a neo-traditional Japanese concept at the wharf. Uh, what makes it extra special for many Washingtonians is that celebrated chef Kaz Okochi is the culinary director there. We've had Kaz on many times. He's great. Uh, their general manager and corporate beverage director, Mike Deary, is going to join us to give us the 411 on uh, Naraya, but also uh, talk about um, uh, his special sakes and whiskey program and more. Uh, then Paris Baguette has uh, only three D.C. area locations, but only 4,000 across the U.S. Uh, they're looking to grow everywhere, but especially here. And Mark Mealy, the company's chief development officer, is going to be on to talk about that. 
And if I could do the dink, dank, donk, uh, the new age music in the background, I would. Uh, Deja Harmony Wellness Symposium is coming at the Lansdowne Resort. Uh, it's coming, uh, I think, July 9th through the 11th. Um, as uh, COO of Deja Harmony, uh, the parent company for Lansdowne Resort, uh, Mark Namdar is responsible for transforming and executing the resort's wellness programs, and he's going to join us to talk about what they have going on there. But first, Deborah Moser from Central Farm Markets. Deborah, hi, Deb. Bring me a shrub. Good morning. How are you? Good. How are you? This is like the market moment. I mean, I feel like there's multiple of them, but because you know, like August, like tomatoes, but like right now, like stone fruits are coming in and berries. It's so right. exciting. Right. Yeah, and there's so much more you can do than just eat them. Mm. And so what we like to do around the house is take some of these fruits and do two things, actually three things with them. We can put them in water and you do a big pitcher of water and some a little bit of ice and let your fruit sit in there like strawberries or peaches, um, some of that you can do watermelon when they come in, blackberries are really good. So you always have a fresh pitcher of nice water with a fruit infusion in it. Cucumbers are great, we love that. I love putting my fruits in water. Yeah, it's really, really, if you're not a big water drinker, I got that, David, thank you. Uh, so that's one thing we do with them. The other thing that we do, and we grow a lot of herbs at our house, but we have them at the market too. So you can get the herbs and start making simple syrups with them. These are great for drinks. So whether you're using cucumbers or lemon verbena or basil, it's one part sugar, one part water, and you cook it down and let that herb sit there or the fruit sit there and just infuse. Can people get instructions when they come to the market? Sure, they can call me too. Just go on uh, Central Farm Markets and you can get my uh, number and call me up or send me an email. Hey, uh, Deb, have you ever wondered why herbs are called herbs and not herbs? Yes. Why is that? I don't know the answer to that. Well, then you're not much of a farmer's market person, <laughs> are you? Uh, what else can, I mean, I, the markets have everything. You have meats and fish and, and the produce and booze and all of that. Uh, what's, what are the hot sellers? Oh gosh, uh, prepared foods to go. Uh, you know, a lot of people coming in and they're getting either dumplings or we have bunned up there and all sorts of good things. The fruits, of course, and the tomatoes. We have um, tomatoes in. They've been grown in greenhouses. They will start coming in by the end of June on I the can't wait. Ugh. Yes, I know. And a uh, basil's in, and we have uh, you know fresh mozzarella. What's better than that on the on your summer plate? So. Lots of good stuff coming in. Father's Day is coming up. Get ready for that. Lots of grilling. <laughs> By one day. Big deal. <laughs> well, we'll grill for you. Okay. All right, Deb, tell everybody where the markets are, please. Uh, markets, uh, you can find all the locations in Montgomery County and uh, Vienna at centralfarmmarkets.com. Okay, great. Thanks, Deb. Thanks. Glad to have you. Have a great week. Thanks very much, Deb. Everybody go to the Farmer's Markets this weekend, Central Farm Markets. And let's bring in Mike Deary. Mike is the GM and Corporate Beverage Director for a great new restaurant, Nara Ya at the Wharf. Uh, uh, our friend uh, Chef Kaz uh, is the uh, culinary director there, so you know it's good food. Mike, welcome to the show. Before we talk about the restaurant specifically, give us a little background on you. How did you end up at, the, at Nara Ya? Thank you. Um... So I actually uh, was the beverage director for uh, La Vie, and um, we hired a GM during the pandemic for Naria, but 
sorry, when the pandemic occurred, he decided to actually leave the industry. And um, with my background, uh, they decided that I would be a better fit to be the GM downstairs. Well, well, so let's that explain out. that um, because for people who aren't familiar with La Vie and Naraya and how this whole like dual concept is happening, can you give us sort of a rundown of it? Uh, so we're part of the same restaurant group. Um, La Vie is much different than uh, Naraya. It is uh, La Vie is a Mediterranean restaurant with a uh, pretty robust cocktail and wine program, whereas uh, Naraya focuses more on the traditional uh, Japanese style of cuisine with some with some modern inflections, and then um, we have a pretty uh, decent uh, sake list, so probably the best one in the city. Well, that's a bold statement. Um, yes, it so is. Tell us a yeah. little bit about like because Naraya, it's it's below Lavi, right? Yes, we're in the same building. Yeah, we're right okay. below. Is it building. underneath it? Uh, it's on the floor below it. Okay. So, and then, but because you're on the wharf, so is there views and things like that? Like, can you give us a, for people who haven't been there or don't understand, like, can you walk us through it a little bit? Yeah. Um, so, it, uh, so our restaurant faces uh, the water. It's all glass windows. Um, mm -hmm. Basically, you have the whole view of the Potomac um, and across the bridge, and then you have the views down the wharf. And the way that we constructed the restaurant is that um, every seat in the house has a really great view. Oh, cool. And let's talk about sort of before we get into your beverage program, since you are the beverage director, let's talk a little bit about the cuisine because, you know, Kaz is really known for doing very traditional sushi and you guys call yourself neo-traditional. What does that really mean? And how does that, how does that get executed in the menu at the restaurant? So we brought Kaz on because we did want to do, there's a lot of uh, pop-ups and fusions when it comes to Japanese cuisine. You'll see like Japanese Peruvian uh, that pops up. Right. Um, but we brought Kaz on because we wanted to do the traditional style of Japanese cuisine, but we also wanted to do, have some ability to do some creative flares, I guess is the best way. So we brought on two chefs. Um, one was a uh, chef Lucas and he worked for Morimoto and he has some experience doing um, different uh, fusion cuisine. And then um, Chef Albany from Seven Reasons, who also has uh, experience doing fusion cuisines. And then Kaz is just, he gives the base and then they decide to like play with the dishes a little bit. Well, you, you must have made some kind of offer because I know Chef Irwin was in Maui. <laughs> Yeah, and I I love Washington, but I wouldn't trade Maui for Washington if I had my head yeah, on straight. I one hundred percent agree. So um, let's talk about the menus just a little bit. Well, um, wait before we yeah, when, can, I would just want to talk about because you know, Chef Kaz is is really known for his sourcing. I mean, the the his his sushi literally melts in your mouth. So how do you, I mean? Where are you sourcing from for the restaurant? So right now, everybody. <laughs> Um, supply lines across the board, just in terms of restaurants, are, it's the worst I've seen in about 15 years. Um, mm -hmm. We are working with multiple vendors to get the freshest product. Um, and it's right now we're using ProFish, True Worlds, um, five, six other vendors just to maintain uh, the quality of the fish that we get. It's very hard right now. Right. I mean, the, the chain... Uh... The broken. chain is broken at the moment, which is something David and I are going to be talking about in a little bit in the middle of the show. So, Mike, as the beverage director, you made a statement in the beginning that you guys have, like, one of the best sake programs 
um, in the city. How did you go about sourcing your sake and, and what is it about your sake program that's so spectacular? So um, as far as uh, sourcing the sake, I've worked in Japanese cuisine for probably about 10 years now. and mm -hmm. I've worked with um, some vendors who have been around for a long time and I have a relationship with them and uh, they they're able to they were able to get me some bottles that are very very rare to get outside of japan mm -hmm. and uh i'm just excited to bring them um one of them it's a very prop uh popular brewer uh it's desai and uh desai makes a one called beyond and it's you can barely ever get it in the states and it's just um the process to make desai they really really control it tightly they don't even tell you what type of rice they use in it <laughs> Okay. Well, can I ask uh, what... We're going to take a break, <laughs> and then when we come back, we can talk about, um, you know, the differences and the real nuances of sake. Um, we'd love to do. So this is David and Nikki Nellis. It's Foodie and the Beast. When we come back, we're talking sake. We're uh, back on Foodie and the Beast with David and Nikki Nellis, and we're talking to Mike Deary, um, who is the beverage director and GM at a great new restaurant at the Wharf called Naraya. And Mike, we were talking about your your sake program and, and, a, and a what kind of difference that a, a customer is going to sense between your run-of-the-mill sakes that you get at, quote, a sushi restaurant and what you get at your restaurant? Okay, so um, our uh, sake list at our restaurant is about 100 different bottles, and it, it varies all, against, all across the different categories of sake um, and the different stylistic expressions of it. And well, so, you know, we've had um, Reiko on from GC Saki. Do you know her? I do know her, actually, yeah. Yeah, so she been I, on? she's amazing. Yeah, she's been on the show. She's incredible. And I mean, we've been able to go down the rabbit hole of sake. Um, but it is amazing that more and more restaurants are carrying it, not just Japanese restaurants, because it really is a light and refreshing wine. Um, let's talk about your whiskey program. Okay. So... Uh, is your whiskey program solely Japanese whiskeys, or do you have, it, you know, are you covering the world? It's uh, it's solely Japanese, with the exception of Uncle Nearest, uh, which is a whiskey from America. Uh, but everything else is Japanese. Okay. And what is it about your Japanese whiskey program? I mean, why, how do you educate your consumer when they come in as to the uh, reason for that? I mean, do most of your diners understand the significance of the whiskey program? Yes, I do, actually. Um, and a lot of people that come in, they think it's really cool. And uh, I do enjoy uh, talking to them. And my servers have gone through some pretty significant training just in terms of the history of Japanese whiskey mm -hmm. and how to uh, talk to guests about how it uh, stylistically compares to um, American or Scottish whiskey. Mm. Okay, great. Well. Um, please tell everybody where they can find you and uh, learn more about whiskey and sake and uh, the restaurant. But, uh, we're located at 88 District Square, uh, floor three. We were located right below La Vie and right above Mi Vida. Excellent. Okay, thanks. Okay, our next guest is a really interesting gentleman. Mark Mealy is Chief Development Officer of Paris Baguette. Uh, there are three Paris Baguette locations in the D.C. area but only 4,000 worldwide. Some are corporately owned and some are franchisees, but the company's been around uh, decades and uh, they're now making a big push, not just in the U.S., but particularly in the Washington area. So, Mark, welcome to the show. Hey, Mark. Well, thanks, Nikki. Thanks, David. I appreciate it. Great to be here. So, Mark, let's talk about the history 
of Paris Baguette, where it came from, what the initial concept was? Yeah, sure. So, you know, Paris Baguette is a, a French-inspired bakery. We, we've been baking in Korea, where we started, uh, since 1945. And back then, it was not Paris Baguette. There were other brands that they had developed. Paris Baguette uh, was a brand created by uh, the company. Our, our corporate uh, arm there is SPC Group, and they're a family of brands. So Paris Baguette was born in 1988, but there are 20 other global brands that make up 7,000 units uh, under the SPC Group. And going back to 1945, that's how long they've been baking. They started baking bread back then. So the 70 plus years of, of baking bread has given us this knowledge of uh, how to produce, how to manufacture dough that goes into not just only bread, but now our pastries, uh, the, the, the cakes, uh, everything that we make and, and bake fresh at the Paris Baguette uh, cafes on a daily basis. So the, so the history is, is deep in, in the dough manufacturing and dough production. Globally, I believe we're either number two or number three in dough production in the world. Uh, so so, so is, that, is that dough production specific to baguettes or are we talking dough production for croissants or for, you know, pastry? Like, how does that, how does that break up? They make, they make all the dough for everything that we produce inside the, the cafe. So we have bread dough, we have pastry dough. Uh, we're able also to produce uh, cakes and the cakes that they produce and that we make fresh in the store are sponge cakes. And we do a lot of uh, other desserts as well. There's pudding desserts, there's macarons, uh, it, it's, it, but everything is produced um, fresh daily inside the store. So, so they, Mark, they really perfected the dough manufacturing process. So uh, it, is it fair to say that Paris Baguette is rolling in dough? But I'm fine. Oh, yeah. No, I, I knew you were going to go there, David. You knew I, I was good. Oh, he's, got, yeah. he's heard my reputation. <laughs> right. Seriously. So how does uh, Paris Baguette come to the States and roll out something here and how do they uh how does the concept sort of evolve in this country so i think i think they were lured into the u.s by you know just obviously the the, the global you know uh, presence of, of the brand them trying to break into different markets they had been in china they went into france they went to vietnam they went to singapore and they said wait what about this you know remarkable area called the u.s we need to go there and they looked at the competitors and competitors in the bakery space. You'd say, well, okay, Panera Bread obviously was doing more baking back in the in the uh, '90s. Uh, you had Obon Pan, okay, who we're familiar with. Yeah. Another Korean bakery is Toulajour. They were oh. here. Mm-hmm. Uh, Le Pan Cote d'Anne, uh, French-inspired bakery here. So all these uh, bakeries existed here. So to roll out a Paris baguette and start to compete against these brands, it just seemed like a, a natural. When they first came here 10 years, 12 years ago, we started to franchise and, and they, they, they did a, I would say, a good, pretty good combination of opening company-owned stores on the East Coast and a few on the West Coast and then trying to franchise from there. They really, they really tried to do concentric development. I think the problem was that they might have come here 
um, trying to bring a, a global way of franchising to the U.S., which is very different. Uh, the, the executive team now that's on board in the last two years, we're all very familiar with uh, franchise development, uh, not only just, just from the uh, expansion standpoint, but from the product standpoint as well. We understand, you know, we, we know franchising first and foremost, and we'll know franchising it pertain, has, and how it pertains to the baking business, where I think before that philosophy was, hey, we're a bakery, now we're trying to franchise. And you've got to think of it in, yeah. in the reverse, be a franchise company first. So that's what we're seeing. So the rollout of getting to a thousand units in the next 10 years is, is well on its way. We've done more in the past four months than we've done in, in you know, the pre, previous two to three years. With Well, growth. that brings up a question because clearly, you know, you mentioned all your competitors and there are more because there are a lot of local, you know, uh, you know, one-off bakeries around and all that. And, um, Site selection obviously is a big deal. I mean, who, what, who's your customer? You know, what is the household income? How do they profile? What do you mean? Who's the customer? I'm I'm saying, I'm saying you're not going to open up next to Abon Pan. So where, you know, where are you looking to open where you're not going to be necessarily, you know, obviously you want to steal market share, but, but you're not going to open up next door. No, David, it's it's a great question, and, and and the answer is this: when when I looked at because that's my area of operation is franchise development. You know, I'm responsible for the sales, the real estate, and the construction and design of these. And the the team that we have uh, put together now for development is focusing in two different areas: it's traditional and non-traditional spaces. What we've done um, now, just just looking at w- where they've been in the past with the previous locations, they spent more time on non-traditional. They went non-traditional into Asian-centric venues. They went into the Zion markets, the H marts, the 99 ranches inside these Asian-centric grocery marts. And, and that's how the brand for, first started to expand here. So they, so they didn't get much of a, a recognition from the presence of a, of a flagship type location. We have flagship locations, but now my growth is all around. Let's go more traditional. Let's look at lifestyle centers. Let's look at where people are eating, where they're working, where they're playing, uh, bigger flagship outdoor inline spaces where, where you'll see the Whole Foods next to the Nordstrom rack across okay, from so the that's container the store. Got it. That's but, the target. But wait, I got a question because I, 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 my, my <laughs> office is located next door to an H Mark for 21 years, and literally every, probably 99 percent of the goods in there came from Korea. Is it because I mean, you know, you would say Korea, and it was born in Korea, and then it's the French, uh, the, the, you know, baguette and all of that. What is the connection? Is it the French history in Southeast Asia, or I mean, or influence what? I, I, it seems almost like a non sequitur to say we're going to open up this this French flavored, at least the name, uh, operation uh, in or near uh, in a you know heavily Korean neighborhood. They, you know what it, it it is it is a cultural thing when you look at the the type of, of food that uh, and and the bread in particular and the pastries that go back into when we say 1945 they started baking bread. Uh, SPC group under the, you know, the name Sang Mandang, they, they were really feeding the masses. And, 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 yeah, and I mean, it's right in World War II. I mean, Korea was yeah, a mess. Were, right. Right. And, and then they got so good at it, they perfected it. And it, it's, 
okay, now we can move into pastries, we can move into cakes and other things. Well, going into the 50s and the 60s and built big factories to do so, and they got especially good at making croissants. And and I think that the, the bread and, and, and culturally, it goes back probably, you know, long, long before even World War II. It's what, when, when I speak to uh, Korean Americans and they're like, oh, this is what we used to get when we were growing up. This bread wow. is so wonderful. And they hold it up to their nose. This is wonderful. There's such an appreciation for, for baked goods. And, you know, we, we just become experts at manufacturing. I mean, the, the palates of, of the, the uh, head bakers and, and the, the people that are right here in, in our U.S. headquarters, it's unbelievable when we do taste tests, they can tell you know, which croissant has the buttery, uh, flaky, you know, what, 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 what's just better? I mean, their palates are so refined and I, I've just blown away that they've taken it to that level, but, Mark, but that's. Mark, I got to interrupt you. I'm so sorry. We have to take a quick yeah. break. We come back though. We'll, we'll only have like two more minutes with you. Obviously we could talk to you so much longer because sure. there's so much here. This is David and Nikki Nellis. Uh, we're not eating baguettes, but we should be. We'll we be should be. What? It's Mark's fault. <laughs> yes. We'll be right back. We're back on Foodie and the Beast with David and Nikki Nellis. We're talking to Mark Mealy, who is the um, uh, chief development officer of Paris Baguette, um, which has its origins in post-World War II Korea. And Mark, I guess one question we haven't asked is, is the original family still involved in to direct any of the operations or is that all past history? It's No, the, the, the grandson is actually the... Um... Uh, well, the, the son is is the chairman. So yes, the, the direct descendants are still there, and uh, the grandson, uh, Mr. Jinsu, her is based in our U.S. office. Mm. So yeah, he's on board, and it's and it's great to just uh, you know the inspiration is there on a daily basis. So it's it's really great. So Mark, let's talk about the actual experience in a Paris baguette because a lot of the places you mentioned did start as bakeries, but then have really you know, fast casual is hitting the mark right now. Like people don't want to go in to just a bakery. There is, you know, you said it yourself, you do sandwiches, you do other things. So is that part, does, does what the business, does Paraguay get feel the need to be more than just a bakery? I, I think we are going to feel that need just to satisfy uh, the, what the market is, is requesting, but I will tell you that we want to stay true to who we are and that is being and, and remaining uh, the, the, the bakery. So we, we, you know, we'll have every day fresh inspired, uh, you know, baked bread, all the pastries, croissants, the uh, baguettes that we'll do on a daily basis, the cakes. You're gonna see more, more bakery and baking every day because everything's made fresh daily. The gourmet sandwiches are there. They're, they'll be there to, to fill that void, you know, in the afternoon and so forth. And, but yeah, it's what, what the others have done. And I named some of those brands before they sort of have, they, they started their roots the same way they were bakeries and then they quickly adapted maybe private equity money stepped in. And then all of a sudden they became eateries. Yeah. You know, we, we want to remain true to become staying the bakery. And, yeah, they and have the see that when you walk of, in of what yeah. their name suggests, but they're not that. So, a uh, uh, sort of a question, a uh, research question. Do I mean, how much do you guys rely on feedback from customers and sort of anecdotal stuff that comes your way through the the different stores, uh, staffs, and the feedback there, or you know, regular formal? 
qualitative and quantitative research where you're out there really digging into the marketplace to find out what's happening and where tastes are changing. Because, you know, the DC market is going to be different than San Diego or Bim Bamboo. So um, how much of that is going on? A, a lot of it's going on. We just we just completed a, a, a brand DNA, our uh, marketing firm, uh, agency of record, just just surveyed many, many people on on they would help us with our brand positioning. So they went out, they did focus groups, sat down with people, what, what they thought about our, our pastries, our cakes, what they thought about the baking industry in general. You know, remember when I grew up anyway, you know, we had the corner bakery, we had the small mom and pops and you never forget that. And, you know, so it's helped us refine what we do inside the four walls and it's going to help us expand as well. So it's really important to understand what the guest wants today. You know, so it, it does drive us. So we're so happy to Mark, say that. On that yeah. note, um, tell us where we can find Paris Regettes in the DC market and, um, and where we can find you online. DC market, you can find us in the Fairfax area. One will be happening in Alexandria soon. We actually have two other locations in the DC metro area. And I would online, you can find us at parisbaguette.com. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks for your time today. Really appreciate it. Yeah, that was really interesting. Thank you. Well, you're so welcome. Thanks, everyone. Have a great weekend. All right. Take care. All right. Bye bye. So usually at this part of the show, we have another guest, but unfortunately, uh, the person who was supposed to come on had an emergency and had to cancel last moment. So actually, David and I are going to get to do something that we don't normally do, which is chat about what's happening in the D.C. restaurant scene right now. Um, so I kind of like that we have this opportunity. And one of the things I wanted to talk about was the staffing crisis in the DC area right now. Um, for those of you who don't know, the Restaurant Association of Metropolitan Washington is hosting a huge job fair on June 15th for both restaurants who need employees and for people who want to become an employee in a restaurant. So you should definitely check that out at ramw.org. Um, but David and I have been going back and forth about well, and we know we know so many people. I mean, our son Sam is in restaurant management, and we know so many people that own and manage restaurants. And there's a staffing crisis out there. Uh, before the pandemic, it was still hard for restaurants to find uh, uh, enough people to fill positions. And apparently, during the crisis, a lot of people have left the industry: servers and you know the the kitchen staff and all the other support people, and they haven't all come back to work. And of course, in the paper, uh, certain conservatives are saying, well, it's just that people don't want to come back to work because the government's keeping them, you know, freshly supplied with money. But that isn't really the case. It's just that folks moved on to other pursuits because the restaurant industry, for all intents and purposes, wasn't in many cases dead, but it was really well, crippled. That, that is an, an unfortunate trope out there that people just want to stay at home and not work and just get free money and do nothing. Well, um, I would like that personally, but that isn't how the world works. So. No, it isn't how the world works. And, um, but I, you know, before, uh, during the pandemic, when restaurants were being shut down and people had to, you know, figure things out, there was a lot of demand out there. There was a real rallying cry for changing the industry. Um, but one of the problems was, was that everybody was sort of, you know, running and gunning to keep their businesses afloat. And now that we're sort of back on and we're, you know, you can dine out and restaurants are coming back to life. 
Um, now they're running and gutting to come back to life. So the problem is, is that there's so many questions that people have about a fair wage and healthcare and things of that nature when it comes to restaurant employment. Um, so there's a lot of things that are going to start happening while you're dining out and you should be educated about it. So for example, the staffing issue is real. Lots of people don't have front of the house. Lots of people don't have back of the house. Vic Dalbisu, David, told us the other night when we saw him at Taco Bamba yep, that yep. he only has two chefs back there. So that means he can only serve so many dishes. Well, yes. the other issue is that when they start to fill these positions with people that don't, I mean, a chef is one thing, but the other support staff that don't come out of the restaurant industry previously is training. And we've seen that in the restaurants that we've gone to, you know, service might be more herky jerky and people might not know all the, uh, you know, the finer points of, listen, in some restaurants, it's just policy. A, a patron gets up from the table and goes to the restroom. When you come back, your napkin's folded and this and that. And all. People have to learn that. And so I think the level of expectation for folks who are dining out has to, in other words, you got to have patience, I think, because it's, it's almost like a whole new world. Well, everybody does need patience. You know, uh, service is definitely going to be slower for two reasons. A, the kitchen is slower because there's not enough staff in the kitchen. And B, the front of the house is slower because it's, it's this cyclical moment. You're 100% right on training. I love being um, right. But, you know, if you don't have the staff and you're constantly, you know, tr you're trying to make money as a business. At the end of the day, the restaurant is a business and it's meant to make money so that they can pay their people and pay the people who own it. Um, and I, I think that gets lost somewhere when people go out to a restaurant and they feel that the server owes them something or the restaurant owes them something. We should be getting free this, well, free that. And I, I don't agree with that assessment. And I, I, I think if you want to be a beneficiary of going to a restaurant, yes, you are spending money there, that you should also understand the workings of a restaurant. Yeah, but that creates other problems because if you think about it, all this stuff about the minimum wage and service fees and tip pooling and all that and healthcare for, for restaurant workers, which is not normally what you know, the, you know, the, the people in the kitchen and all that get. Mm -hmm. And it is a business. I, I own a business and everything you give to your employees has to get paid for. And the only way it gets paid for is if you start bumping your prices. Well, and I think that's what, so you and I have been to multiple restaurants in the last couple of weeks that have had service fees attached to them. Yeah. When we went to Perfecto, it was a $25, just $25 service fee across the board. And then when we went to Reveler's Hour and when we went to the Duck and the Peach, they both put a 23% service fee. Now, you know, the people at Imperfecto do not talk about what that fee was for, whereas at uh, Reveler's Hour and at Duck of the Peach, that is to go for a fair wage for employees in the front of the house. You can tip if you choose to, but this is in lieu of tipping. So, right. so for diners, they have to make a decision about, do they just suck it up and pay it and, and go out as frequently? Or do you go out less often, understanding you're going to pay more, uh, but, you know, make that choice. I mean, at some point, it also falls back on, you know, the diners are the ones fueling all this. So, so they have to be willing to, you know, to diners dig it. Fueling and, and, all what? what are diners fueling? Our, our, the diner's money pays for, for this restaurant to be open and yeah. to pay its staff and all that. So diners have to be willing to accept these additional 
and really, you know, new charges that uh, uh, in order for people to get health care in the restaurant, for them to get a fairer wage and all of that. So it's a it's a it's like that uh, drawing of the larger fish eating the next smaller fish eating the next smaller fish. It's a food chain. It's a supply chain that starts with people who want to dine out and eat in that particular restaurant. It's that a, is very true, but I do, I, I do really, uh, I want to trump it to people that it is important to be kind and patient when we go to these restaurants. I mean, as you remarked earlier, David, I mean, the restaurants are packed. Um, they are, you know, if they can get the people in there, they will. Um, but, you know, there's only so much staff at Dauphine's last night. The whole bar area is not open yet. And the bar area is not open yet because they don't have enough staff to stop yeah. our area. But here's what I think. And this yeah. is just me. And it's I'm just I'm just pulling this out of my the back of my brain. Yeah. Everywhere is jammed now because people have all there's all this pent up demand and we've been like caged animals for a year and a half. I think the, the question is, you know, how the whole thing will sort of pan out, not not this summer, but after summer, when September rolls around and the weather changes, uh, some of the restaurants that that in other words, we're gonna go back to the survival of the fittest. Right now, I think a lot of places are surviving. No, I disagree. Well, you're allowed to. That's why we're married. That's the restaurant industry anyway. And I think you're missing a really huge key component, which is tourists. Tourism has not kicked back up yet in the D.C. Right, but we don't have tourists in the fall. We have tourists. 27 million people visit D.C. and about 75% of them. Is there a convention center here? I believe there's a convention center. Right, but they're all jammed into, they're all staying at convention hotels downtown. They're not, they're not, you know, out. It brings money to the city. Okay, Okay. on that note, that was David and I doing our own segment. We're going to take a quick break. It's our first fight. Right. We're going to talk about wellness, and I'm really looking forward to that conversation. This is David and Nikki Nellis, Foodie and the Beast. We'll be right back. All right, we're back on Foodie and the Beast with David and Nikki Nellis, and our next segment's going to be really interesting. You know, the wellness movement, uh, whether it was people doing transcendental meditation or just eating right or getting nutritionists or learning how to de-stress, has been around for a while. But the 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 pandemic um, created a, an even a hyper need for for wellness and for sort of getting in touch with your uh, your inner uh, calm. And um, it's very interesting that a lot of you know larger entities are getting into this world. Lansdowne Resort. Uh, which has been around since uh, I think 1989. In fact, I own a marketing agency. We were we were their first agency, but they've oh, transformed recently. Yes, you didn't know that. Our next guest did not know that, but now he does. Um, uh, a group called Deja Harmony uh, bought uh, Lansdowne, and they have instituted a kind of a, a, a wellness regimen, really, for the entire uh, property. Uh, they're launching something called the Deja Harmony Wellness Symposium. Ever get speak? I, mean, I am. I'm going to. And we are joined by Mark Namdar, who is responsible for the transformation and executing this resort's wellness programs. Mark, welcome to Foodie and the Beast. How are you? Thank you so much. Uh, thank you for having me on the show. And uh, I, as a matter of fact, uh, we are celebrating our 30th anniversary this year for the resort. So it's pretty exciting. And, well, uh, Talk a little bit about Lansdowne and its change because the Lansdowne, there right. has been uh, a big change in the last year. Yes. Well, I think that the, obviously uh, the pandemic kind of changed the whole uh, blueprint of the industry as a whole. And um, one of the uh, major uh, 
goals for our owner was to really transform the resort into a wellness resort. And uh, we have a perfect platform for it. You know, obviously you may know that the resort is 476 acres. We have three golf courses. We have 12,000 square feet spa. We got four pools. We got four restaurants. We got 55,000 square feet of uh, meeting space. So, so we really have all the uh, sort of components of creating an experience for the guests. So really the next step was how do we do that? And so we decided uh, as a team to really uh, take a look at, uh, especially after coronavirus uh, and what's happening right now, we thought people are really uh, have elevated their focus on health. And uh, so we said, okay, uh, we started working on some packages and start bringing in some uh, programs, uh, you know, uh, regular program, like yoga, acupuncture, uh, meditation. Uh, we change our spa menu a little bit, uh, more of a uh, detoxing and respiratory kind of a, um, um, treatments. And so it's really has just, it's, it's going gangbuster actually. It's, uh, we are very, very happy. And, the symposium next week, really, uh, we, uh, as you know, next week on Saturday mm-hmm. is Wellness Day, and people are celebrating around the world. And we said, okay, what can we do to sort of, you know, get in the ring of uh, this uh, for globally? And so we started talking to some experts about, um, you know, joining us to speak at this event. And um, so I'm excited to say that we have a great lineup of uh, doctors. Uh, They're mostly alternative and complementary medicine experts. Uh, We have Dr. Ed Group, who is out of Arizona, who's uh, one of the most uh, original holistic doctors and uh, he has his own um, uh, um, manufacturing we got Lewis Hoffman, who is actually, uh, you know, uh, acupuncturist, and he was a, a White House uh, doctor uh, for uh, and Air Force One. Um, we have an expert with uh, Qigong and Tai Chi, uh, Dr. Ehang um, uh, Ku, who's going to be joining us. Um, and locally, we uh, uh, tap, uh, tap, tapper nutrition. Uh, May Francis uh, is going to join us to talk about nutrition. So our goal is really to help you educate the people about, you know, how to change, you know, uh, basically the lifestyle a little bit, be healthier. Uh, it's all through nutrition, exercise, uh, meditation, and um, so that's kind of uh, the goal for next week. I'm interested because did I mean I happened to know someone who represented Deepak Chopra when his books first came out and yes. all that. And I have a brother that's been with the TM movement since he was in yeah, college. Yeah, but TM is not wellness. Huh? TM, well, TM is, is part of this, and yes, you you missed that. There's going to be meditation as part of this week. Yeah, but so, that's not. Part I know, of- but I'm. I you're 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 not allowing me to ask my question, dear. My okay. question is this: are, are do you experience any kind of skepticism or 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 resistance still when guests call to you know to sign up for this? To who who still think you know some of this stuff is just kind of like too far out there? Yeah, I think that, maybe that's a great question. What we are seeing as a whole, I mean, I don't think the city is uh, uh, about this particular program, but. As a whole, there's two 
sort of groups of people right now. It's divided, you know, like you got these people that are, they really don't, you know, they want to party, they want to go to bars, they want to go to restaurants, they don't want to wear masks. And then you got another group of people who are just very cautious. They come still with a mask. They're even vaccinated. They still wear their masks. So uh, we are in transition right now, I think, you know, um, as far as uh, what's happening uh, in the public uh, and how they're kind of beginning to come back, you know. And um, so we are just happy that we got uh, people are beginning to travel again and uh, coming to events. And, and it's just pretty exciting to see that uh, it was, uh, you know, uh, the hotel industry, as you know, and restaurants and bars, you know, we took a pretty big hit this past year. Okay. And so it's, it's, it was, uh, so it's nice to see people beginning to, um, you know, uh, come back and uh, support all the local restaurants, bars and, and hotels for that matter. Well, so with this wellness symposium, how do you advise people? Because you have a lot of, of, uh, of panel discussions, but how are what are some of the other activations that are happening so that people can partake in the spa and the wellness component that the hotel is offering? And you know, is your kitchen changing things? You know, because you have a massive sure. program. How so, is uh, so. Like? Yeah, it's, uh, so we have actually, we started this actually last, uh, last year. Um, we started the process. Uh, so we, one of the things we did, we, we are all about the sort of changing. Uh, we, we, we follow the sort of the traditional uh, ways of uh, uh, nutrition. So we follow the five elements and the five elements, you know, really uh, being, uh, uh, you know, it's basically a seasonal menu, but we use the five elements, which is wood, fire, earth, metal, and uh, water. So each of the elements is tied into the particular type of foods that you serve. So right now we're in a spring, uh, you know, a wood element, which is spring. So our chef was able to utilize the uh, basically the menu, the items that are for that season integrated into the menu because in traditional medicine, you know, one of the big things, it's all about balance, your body's balance, right? And so, you know, and so every season, there's a particular organ of your body that needs the most help. And so really what we try to do right now, for instance, you know, uh, spring is, uh, you know, is your liver and gallbladder. So that that's needs the most help. So we put nutrition into your body that supports that. And, and, you know, next uh, summer goes into your heart and your small intestine. So we provide food that's nutrition that helps your, you know, your, you know, your heart and your small intestine. So really that's what we're doing right now. We, and we've, we have done it in a very nice way. The chef has done a great job of putting a little notes on each of the menu item as far as what is the reason for what you're eating and mm -hmm. and you know, and so aligning that. So it's it's a very interesting concept. I mean, it's kind of sort of is farm to table ultimately, but really that's where really farm to table came from. I mean, it's right. uh, you know nice. in a Western way. So unfortunately, we are running out of time here. So can you tell everybody? where they can find the latest on what's happening at Lansdowne and on the Wellness Symposium. 
Yes, uh, so it's on Eventbrite. So uh, if they want to you know, uh, register on Eventbrite, just uh, type in Lansdowne um, or on Lansdowne website, Lansdowne.com. Um, <laughs> and uh, we would love to have you. And uh, it's a great, great program. I think uh, uh, your audience will learn a lot. And uh, we would love to have you guys join us. Can you come? Just a quick question. Can you? Do you have to buy a package, or can I come if I want to? You know, attend the Beth Shaw um, uh, uh, presentation or you yeah, know, a la carte. right, right. So it's it's a, so we had uh, we have a three day package that comes. It's a Friday speakers dinner, and then Saturday all day, Sunday brunch, and then you spend some time with the speakers again and do yoga, meditation, stuff like that. Then we have a day pass on Saturday only. Okay. And uh, so that's, uh, that, those are the major two offers. Awesome. All Great. right. Okay. Thank you so much for joining us today. And we want to thank you, the listener, for joining us. There is so much happening in the D.C. metro area. You can always check out the list, areyouwanna.com, the online e-zine that lists every food and wine event, including that wellness symposium. Um, so for all the information, you can go there. You should be following me at N-Y-C-C-I-N-E-L-L-I-S on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Don't forget to check out Industry Night every week, Tuesdays on Real Fun DC. And of course, see David and I here every Sunday at 11 a.m. on Foodie and the Beast. Be safe out there. If you're vaxxed, you don't have to be masked. Have a great week.